Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Domestic violence is very common in American families, and almost 20% of all marriages and intimate partnerships, couples slap, shove, hit, or otherwise assault each other. Emotional abuse in the form of verbal threats, humiliating or degrading remarks, and controlling behavior is even more common. There are many types of this abusive behavior. One common pattern, distinguished by coercion and control, including extreme jealousy, retaliation, and emotional and physical abuse. This controlling abuse is usually called intimate terrorism, and over 90% of these perpetrators are male. Another type of violence, much more common for what we see as MFTs, is characterized by aggression, but little or no controlling behavior. This type, usually referred to as situational couple violence, occurs as disagreements escalate, into physical actions that usually both members of the couple regret. This pattern is more likely to be mutual and it's equally perpetrated by men and women. So conjoint couples treatment for IPV remains a very controversial topic in our field despite a growing body of research and practice experience indicating that not only can it be effective and safe, it is helpful and preferred working with couples where situational violence is present. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're going to talk about this IPV with Chelsea Spencer. She is a research assistant professor in the couple and family therapy program at Kansas State. Actually, she has all three of her degrees, a BS in Family Studies, an MS in MFT, and a PhD in MFT from K-State under the tutelage of a very important figure in intimate partner violence, Dr. Sandra Sith, who we'll reference many times today. Chelsea's research focuses primarily on IPV, intimate partner homicide, and sexual violence. Much of that research is focused on identifying factors associated with risk for violence perpetration and victimization, which she'll speak of today. She specializes in conducting meta-analyses and other quantitative research methods. She also conducts research for the Department of Defense in the United States Air Force with work centering around domestic violence prevention and intervention. Dr. Spencer serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, our gold standard journal, JMFT. She's also a member of NCFR, that's the National Council on Family Relations, and she is part of our very own AAMFT. 
Eli back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So pleased to be joined by Dr. Chelsea Spencer. And today we're talking about a topic often requested, intimate partner violence. And this is something that affects any type of therapist, but especially systemic couple and family therapists. So it used to be in our field that was a no-no when this existed, conjoint treatment, i.e. as a couple was taboo. We know now that that is not the case. So today we're going to talk about when you can do the couple's work, what type of constellation or presenting issues, how the the violence manifest makes it safe to do that. We're also going to talk about when you don't. And the great thing about Chelsea, she has worked with some of the best and she's at Place Kansas State and has a track record for working. So she is a scientist practitioner. So we'll learn about the research, which is important, and also what you do as a clinician when you're assessing and working with intimate partner violence. But the first question always, Chelsea, is how did you get interested, well, in MFT in general, but specifically in our topic today, working with partner violence? So starting out, I think as a kid, I always wanted to be a therapist. Obviously, as a kid, I didn't know MFTs existed. You know, going into undergrad, I I was a psychology major, thinking that was the, the track I was going to take. And it was actually my first semester of undergrad. I had a amazing teacher teaching the introduction, the HDFS, Human Development Family Science, or FSHS at the time, the introductory course. And she was amazed. I don't know, I guess the systemic thinking really spoke to me. And then it was that semester I actually learned about MFT. So I changed my major. Um, So it was pretty early on. I knew this is the field that I wanted to go into. And then how did I get interested in intimate partner violence? Basically, when I was thinking about something that I wanted to invest my time in and do research on and be involved with, I was wanting to think something that felt important to me to really feel like I was making a difference. And basically in high school, undergraduate, I had a few really, really close friends who were in relationships where there was what I would consider pretty severe physical violence. And to me at the time, that seemed where my energy needed to go. And then just as I got further into working with Dr. Sandy Stith and really learning more and more over time, just kind of solidified itself. And it really became, this is, this is my focus and specialization that I want to work with because it felt important to me. You mentioned Sandy Stith, so she is a pioneer in this work in the field with intimate partner violence, along with her colleague, Eric McCollum. They revolutionized the way we think of treating couples where there's violence involved. For our listeners that may not be familiar, what was so pioneering about their research and the clinical implications? So Sandy and Eric, they developed a treatment protocol working with couples who had experienced situational couple violence. And just to kind of define that, that's Michael Johnson's typology, where that's really characterized by usually bilateral or um, both partners are using violence, not always, but 
Typically, it's characterized by low levels of violence, where the violence is not happening as a way to control the other person. It's it's mostly related maybe to emotional regulation skills, anger management skills, lack of conflict resolution skills, and they develop an approach or a protocol working with couples, very solution-focused based, group-based. You can also work with individual couples with this, and the research says that it reduced violence and, you know, they were some of the first people to say this, we can do this. And just knowing Sandy and just conversations that we've had, some couples, we they choose to stay together. They want to work on this and that, that's their choice. Either they don't get help or they do. And so if it really is a lack of conflict resolution skills, a lack of affect regulation skills or anger management skills, these folks deserve help um, if they're asking for it. And either they get help or they don't. And if they choose to be in the relationship and don't get help, that's not going to be beneficial to them either. And I always think about it, if we had to disqualify all the potential couples that MFTs could help around the world just because they've had some type of physical aggression in their relationship, that we'd be losing a big population that needs help. So as you said, it's all about the type of violence. So we have situational violence that you just described, and then we have what's known as intimate terrorism. So for our listeners, talk about the difference between the two and why one is suitable to this couple's treatment and one is not. I'll start with intimate terrorism. I think intimate terrorism is that maybe, maybe not, but what we really think about when we think about intimate partner violence, where it's one partner dominating the other, it's so again, it's unilateral, where there's one person who's inflicting the violence, they're using it to control or dominate, manipulate the other partner. It's used force, it's often more severe. It's more likely to escalate into very dangerous levels of intimate partner violence. And it's not an equitable relationship, right? It's one person dominating the other. And then, and that would not be suitable for couples treatment. That's that's not um, something that is a safe situation where one partner can be vulnerable if they're fearful of their partner. So that would be the type of violence we would not see in couples therapy. And so, again, looking at the difference, situational couple violence is going to be focused, again, low levels of violence, pushing, shoving, or maybe even just verbal aggression. You know, those lower levels, not that they're not still impactful, but it's not escalating to severe forms of physical violence. And there's not necessarily fear between the partners where one person is dominating and controlling the others, the other partner. It's, it's again, more about conflict that escalates between the two. It can also be bilateral where they're both using it in the relationship. Also, what do you think about remorse as a factor? Because usually an intimate terrorist, they are not going to present to therapy or they're going to be there as what I call a hostage client against their will because they're court ordered or some other reason. But to me, couples that have had bouts of situational violence They're both very remorseful about it. They carry a level of guilt and shame around it. Where an intimate terrorist, the ends justify the means. They usually do not have any remorse at all. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too, is the remorse. Do they want to change? I think that's a huge part, too. I think remorse or guilt or shame surrounding it leads to wanting to change, wanting to do something different. And I would say someone who would be an intimate terrorist 
like you said, they probably don't see any issues with their behavior and, you know, they'll justify it and there's reasoning, there's excuses, they might blame the partner. Well, if you didn't do X, Y, Z, I wouldn't have had to hit you or, or whatever that is. So I think the remorse, shame, guilt, wanting to change is huge. And like you said, I think someone who's an intimate terrorist probably won't be seeking therapy. I mean, they might, unless like you said, they're court ordered or something, but I don't imagine they're just willingly going to say, yeah, let's go to therapy and fix this. And if they do, it might be for other reasons as well, you know, more manipulative reasons. As we get into talking about, again, this population, there's still a lot of myths that exist about intimate partner violence. What do you think, and we've talked maybe about a few of them already, what do you think the biggest myths stemming from domestic violence and intimate partner violence are? That's a great question. So I think some of the biggest myths, I think one of them is that, well, we kind of touched on it already, is that We can't do couples treatment when there's situations of intimate partner violence. And as you mentioned, there's a citation from O'Leary, but I believe it's between 40 and 60% of clients that we'll see have experienced some form of violence in their relationship. So I think that's a huge one is that we're going to be seeing them and they're going to be coming in. And again, if there's that situational level, uh, situational couple violence, we can see them and it can be effective. We have research that says that these couple treatments do work. Another, I guess, myth that some people might have is that stereotypical type of couple that this may appear in, and that's just simply not true. We know that intimate partner violence spans all socio-demographic variables that there are. It doesn't matter if someone's wealthy or educated or any of those things that we might say some people may have an image in their head of what a couple experiencing domestic violence may look like but I think it it spans anybody so I think as a clinician just thinking you have a couple come in and some people don't assess for violence just like oh no this is just a really sweet nice couple um there's no way but we we know that it it can present anywhere and i think that's really important for clinicians to know you mentioned the screening that is another question we get a lot so what do you think the best way to screen for ipv is is it in your opening phone call is it in paperwork that you have a couple fill out before you see them is it in that first session what your tips on screening for intimate partner violence So that's another great question. It'll kind of depend. And it might just be because of what I specialize in, but I'll get a lot of phone calls in the first. I mean, that's what they want, you know. So obviously, if that's what they're looking for, they're going to bring it up in the first phone call with me. And that's the case. You know, we can talk a little bit about it. I don't go fully in depth over the phone, but can kind of just see what's going on and what they're looking for and send intake paperwork prior to meeting with them. They, they might write it in there. I'll, I'll read that. But for me, I think the real actual screening would be in that first session. For me, I like to build a connection. It's also not the very first thing I do because, again, I want to have a, that solid connection. I want them to know it's a safe space, 
prior to doing that, this is still in the first session, but you know, my opener isn't let's let's screen for intimate partner violence, but towards maybe the middle or half end of the the first session, um, that's when that's when I would do it. Again, just I want to build that rapport where they feel safe, because if they don't feel safe, they'll may not just disclose it, I want them to feel safe to do so. And then what I would recommend is screening the couples separately. So talking to one partner first, and then the other partner, and just you know, asking about about both perpetration and victimization, you know, the thing that they faced. And I think a lot of clinicians or students who are, are being trained might not think people will disclose that, but they do. <laughs> and they will. A lot of times, too, people will disclose violence, perpetration, or victimization and really not think it's a big deal. I've had couples say, yeah, I slapped him, you know, he deserved it. You know, so, so, they, they will disclose if they feel safe. And so you if you're afraid of lack of honesty, of course, that's always a potential, you know, potential somebody may be experiencing violence and not say that. But again, I think if you establish that rapport and re- recognize that this is a safe place, then they'll more than likely open up and disclose that. So that's that's how and when I would. And then I would probably ask about specific acts you experienced giving examples of emotional, physical, or sexual violence. And because some, also some people may not really know what would constitute as emotional violence. So you bring up an interesting point, whether to keep people together or break them down individually in an opening meeting. And I think there's merit to both. I think if the presenting problem in, in developing this couple cycle, why they came to see you, if when you ask about their arguments or fights and certainly if they get physical or if they become emotionally abusive there is then grounds for the therapist in their opening way of working then to break that session down to working with people individually to try to get a really honest take on what's going on especially if you feel that something is off with the couple would you wait until something like that indicated that you should break it down or would it just be your standard way of working in a first session no matter if there was no history of violence or not to break it down to meet with each partner individually i think it's helpful to separate them and the reason why is okay, sandy and i we we presented this we we haven't published it and maybe we should but we looked at the data that she and Eric McCollum collected with their treatment, and we looked at what were some of the biggest indicators of successful or unsuccessful treatment for these couples. And what, you know, one factor that we found was were there discrepancies between the the male and female partner in the study on what acts of violence had occurred. So if one partner is saying they strangled me, they've punched me, they've kicked me and the other person says I just shoved them once that should be a huge red flag and that's why I think and because that was indicative of unsuccessful treatment when there were not reporting the same acts so it wasn't necessarily like how many acts or what acts it was the discrepancy between the couples so again that also kind of shows some lack of taking responsibility for what happened as well so if one partner says I didn't do anything but yell at them and the other person is saying no they've done all of these physical acts towards me that would be something that could also be a red flag for you and if it's a couple who doesn't indicate that there's violence or anything like that it might be less extensive if someone's coming in saying there's violence I might go over acts where someone says have they ever pushed or shoved you and they're like no 
no, no, you know, so it kind of just depends on the couple on how long that process is and how long that screening would take. But I do think it's important to get both partners separately. And then of course, again, sometimes that's, that's a five minute discussion where it's like, there's nothing going on here. Okay, that then then we'll move on. And how do you frame it just for our listeners, why we need to break down individually now in our first meeting? What is your language to normalize it for the couple? I guess just what I would say is you just tell them like, okay, so now um, the next thing we're going to do is I'm just going to talk to you each individually really quick and just get some information individually. And then we'll just meet back up together in, in, in a few moments. I mean, that that's as simple as it is. I don't even necessarily, I just act like it's a normal part of the routine first session just saying okay now we're just gonna talk separately really quick you know if you want to wait in the lobby we'll chat and then we'll switch and then we'll come all back together after that and so again just making it pretty casual in the sense of okay this is what we're gonna do and this is what the process is gonna look like and this won't take take too long now let's have a scenario where you do that breaking down individually you bring them back together and there is a discrepancy So how do you deal with that? And obviously, if it's a part of a presenting problem that we don't fight fairly and sometimes our fight gets physical, it's it's right there for the therapist. But if you meet alone with them and they disclose a moment or moments of intimate partner violence in the past, but they don't tie it in the presenting problem, how do you deal with it? It's a discrepancy and they may not have highlighted that as to a reason they're coming in to work with you. Oh, it's complex. So, so again, let's start with let's break it down. Talking about the discrepancy. So, if it is a small discrepancy, I'll take note. You know, if someone says, "Oh, I hit them once," I hit, they hit me twice. Whereas, if it's something much larger, like strangulation, and then they're saying, "I didn't do anything," and there's that really big discrepancy there, I might work on talk about potentially doing individual therapy before coming in as a couple that's always an option and then they can see a different see different therapists until they're ready for couples if, if that's the case and I also don't disclose like hey your partner said you did all these things to them what's going on with that I don't because I take that seriously because that could put someone in danger and I think that's important to note so if there are these large discrepancies where there's severe acts of violence being reported by one person and then none by the other I don't disclose and say they said you strangled them and did all these things because that could not be safe I, I would just say you know maybe it's important to do some individual therapy prior to doing couples um, if it's a minor discrepancy I'll note that but again I don't say that there you you said twice you said once but what I would do is keep note of that then I would talk to them as a couple about if again if it's low level situational but I would probably just start talking about so when we get all together just like you both had mentioned some violent acts how does that look and then that's when I would go into the what does this look like when this escalates and what happens and how do you handle it and even if someone doesn't come in saying violence is what I want to come to therapy for if they indicate there's violence I can't stress it enough, low levels of violence, then anything that they're coming in for, it's probably some form of conflict, right? So goal can be the same. We can have a mutual goal. I want to help decrease the violence. I know even if they don't come presenting that, I would imagine they would. But if they're saying they're 
we're having conflict about whatever it is, teaching, again, teaching those skills of conflict resolution, anger management, that's going to help as well. It's going to be helpful for these couples, whether or not they come in saying, we need, we have a intimate partner violence problem. Usually it would be like communication, conflict, but those are all, they're interrelated. Frame I use is we're here to work on your cycle and part of your cycle uh, when you will get really out of sorts can lead to this. And this is an extreme example, even though it hasn't happened often, but you become physical. So part of us, our work here is to give you the tools to both understand your cycle and do something different about it. So you can pretty much tie anything back into the couple cycle in a way that when there is situational violence, usually both people play a part in that versus intimate terrorism. A person is never going to accept responsibility for their part in the cycle. And as we said earlier, they are probably going to justify why they did what they did. So that is a good way of how to tie in once you get this data that there has been some physical altercation between the couple back into why they're there. Now, another question we get also is around a no violence contract. So give us your thoughts on that. How you present it and when you present it. I feel like maybe I come across like this is normal for me to do, right? You're you're not putting shame around it. There, there's just a way to present things, I think, that you feel like we have to sign this no violence contract and you don't want to be shaming and that's hard how to quantify that but but to make sure there's just no shame or, or this isn't a shameful thing again making it seem normal like okay so when I have couples who've expressed that there's been violence we just we just signed this contract that while we're in therapy we're gonna um, refrain from using violence in the relationship I, I mean I would do that at first session or or later on because sometimes they they might say no there hasn't been any violence and then it comes out later in therapy that there has been so I, I would again just normalize it just okay when a couple comes in which they do and again for me it might it might be different because a lot of people seek me out for domestic violence work. But again, just normalizing like, hey, this is just what we do. And then just say we sign this contract that we're going to refrain while we're in therapy from using violence because this process, if there's still violence going on in the relationship, this that's not going to help this process and it's going to impede the work that we're doing. And it's going to make it harder for us to make positive changes. Yeah. And use the S word shame. I think what I try to do is create two other S's, safety and structure, which every couple needs when they're working through their psycho. So if you can tie it into that, and as you said earlier, if you've built an alliance with the couple collectively, each person individually and the couple together, you say, hey, this is what helps you all to do our work and gives us structure and safety both inside of the room and outside of the room when you're practicing what we're learning. So I like what, what you said. And again, I think if you normalize it as a piece that gives safety and structure to what they're trying to do, because when you're working with a couple where there is situational violence, neither one of them likes the effect of that on the relationship. And there is usually a high motivation to do something different. And that safety contract, no violence contract operationalizes the structure of the therapy. So uh, I like that a lot. Now, you're also a very skilled researcher and you've done your own work. Also, of course, worked with Sandy, as we've said, but you have pioneered working with the meta-analysis, which is great. I always love as a kind of research informed clinician, as far as updating my skill set, reading meta-analyses that kind of distill down all the best research from all of these studies together. So what have you found from your own research that is clinically relevant 
to our listeners. Um, thank you. And yes, I think meta-analyses are so useful because they just synthesize all the research that's out there and puts them in a nice one paper that, that you can read. So a lot of the meta-analyses that I've done um, have really focused on risk markers or risk factors for intimate partner violence or intimate partner homicide. And I think um, looking at what puts somebody at risk, um, because again, this is looking at correlational um, research. So again, it's not necessarily when I say risk marker, that just means it's associated with. So that can also give us really good points at prevention or intervention work that we can use as clinicians. And so that's, that's what's really important to me. And I think I think I'll start off um, talking a little bit about a meta-analysis. It was it was my dissertation. Um, it's it's published now. It's one of my favorite papers. I don't know if I'm the only person who who has favorites um, of their studies, but I did a meta-analysis looking at risk for intimate partner homicide. So again, when we're looking at the continuum of violence, I would say the most severe form. In that study, uh, we looked at risk factors. Again, just the, the, the researcher, I'm calling that a risk factor because we know that the, the behavior that the, that's putting somebody at risk happened before the homicide because that's kind of a final outcome. So we're looking at risk factors for intimate partner homicide comparing against couples who were intimate partner violence. So again, this is what's putting someone at risk if they compared to intimate partner violence. So it's not even just general community. So if you are working with a couple where there's intimate partner violence, looking at these top risk factors can be really, really helpful for one, just for yourself to knowing this, but also um, psychoeducation too. Um, and that could be also be if you're working with individuals. You know, I know we're MFTs, but we still see individuals sometimes. Again, educating, you know, the dangerousness or the potential dangerousness of a situation can be helpful. Not that we tell our clients what to do or that they need to leave, but I think can, we can provide them with research. So from that study, looking at risk factors for intimate partner homicide, and again, this was looking at male perpetration, female victimization. Just more research has been done on that topic. And when we look at intimate partner homicide, there is a, a g- gender discrepancy there with men perpetrating more often than women. So one of the most interesting and and clinically relevant findings from that study is looking at the by far the strongest risk factor for intimate partner homicide was the perpetrator having uh, direct access to guns. And it increased the likely, uh, likelihood of a homicide by over 1,000%. And it makes sense if you think about it. Obviously, if there's a gun readily available and there's a lack of impulse control, obviously that's something that in a second can kill somebody. So increasing the likelihood by 1,000% is huge, but also clinically relevant. In, in my clinical training, you know, if somebody reports suicidal ideation, I was always taught to assess for guns and the availability of guns that this person has. And would I, I really, really advocate for if you're working with a couple where there's intimate partner violence, to also ask about guns because, you know, an access to guns and if there is access, can you lock them up? Kind of the same that you would if somebody is suicidal to implement that when when there's violence and just, you know, make sure there's not that direct access. And by direct access, I mean in seconds, you know, if it's in the basement locked in a safe, but we would encourage them to do that instead of, you know, having it at their nightstand, you know, um, or whatever that is. And so to me, that's huge. And, and then again, I'll just go over some other 
of the stronger risk factors for that was threatening with a weapon. So again, the threats of that, non-fatal strangulation, that was the third strongest risk factor. So that is something that I've experienced clients or even students I was uh, mentoring kind of downplayed play the seriousness of non-fatal strangulation. So so that's one to really look out for. Because again, I've, I've, I've seen where clients are like, yeah, they strangled me and kind of make that it's not a big deal. But whenever that happens, I, I always say that that's, you know, something to key in on. And a few years ago, I did take a, it was like an all day workshop on strangulation. It was more so for, it was more directed towards law enforcement. You know, it's really important if the, the strangulation piece comes in to, one, recognize that, you know, that also increased the likelihood of a future homicide by seven times, but also start asking more details about that to see if the person passed out, to see how long that happened. Because if, if it, someone passes out, you think about that's that's a high level of violence. To You know, it takes some time for somebody to pass out from being strangled. So... Again, that's going to highlight the severity of, of, of the situation as well. So that's something that I always, if I'm working with a student or something, that's always something I ask that they they key in on if, if there has been um, strangulation. Strangulation guns, these lend to intimate terrorism. I don't think you're going to see much situational violence where talking about choking people and threatening people with firearms. So this often brings up another point which we couldn't do this interview without talking about when you were dealing with a victim of this type of violence and sometimes they're coming to you because they know they need to leave but it's not that simple you also know a lot about barriers to leaving toxic and abusive and unsafe relationships like this let's talk about what those barriers are and how to help clients lift some of those constraints if possible yeah, thank you for bringing this up. I think this is so important. So again, I know we're MFTs, but we also see individuals. And again, I I see I see couples, but I see just as many um, individual clients who are who are, are victims of violence, and they don't know whether or not they're ready to leave the relationship. And and I agree, it's going to lend more into intimate terrorism at this point. Like you said, the, someone who's threatening with weapons and and strangulation, they're they're way less likely to be coming in for conjoint treatment. It's usually the individual. And I have a lot to say on this. One thing is we never tell our clients what to do. Even if it's a dangerous situation, we can point out that, that these are dangerous behaviors, but they already know that. Chances are they might downplay it, but, you know, it's just genuine concern that the you know letting them know this is dangerous coming up with a safety plan is important you know if things escalate do you have somebody you can call do you have somebody that do you have somewhere to go where they won't know where you are so sometimes they're not ready to leave the abusive relationship so I try to help them with with those processes of recognizing it's dangerous and then also safety planning if they're not ready to leave. But what I think is really important, um, Eli, like you said, is talking about the barriers because it is important for us as clinicians to be empathetic towards the, the barriers to leaving an abusive relationship. We may on the inside want to be like, this is bad, you need to leave, but that's not going to be helpful. I'm sure their friends and family have told them that. <laughs> if they're not ready to leave, then the therapist just saying that again isn't going to 
make a difference. And it's probably going to make them not want to go to therapy, to be honest. That's just what they're hearing. But some of the barriers, I think that's important to talk about. There's so many, but I want to talk about some that maybe people might not think of. Of course, there's love and hope that they're going to change. And the perpetrator probably has at some point have had some positive qualities as well. There was something that's keeping them in the relationship. It's scary. It could be financial. But some other ones that maybe we don't think of is, is if they have kids. We as the therapist might say, get the kids out of the, you know, like it's better to get the kids out of there. But we don't think about later on is they might have to have joint custody with this person. So now I have to give this person who's abusing me, my children, for a week at a time or the weekend and I can't supervise. That might be scarier than staying in the abusive relationship where you can at least know you're there to protect your kids if needed. I think that's one that we don't think of. My PhD program, my placement site was the local domestic violence shelter. So again, you know, hearing these stories, of course these women had left, they were in the the shelter, but talking about these realities of about the children, you know, it's maybe not something that I would have thought of necessarily, but it was huge. It was very, very scary. And I think that's a barrier that we need to keep in mind if, if there are children. Another barrier is just fear. Research does show that the likelihood of an intimate partner homicide actually increases the first three months that somebody leaves an abusive partner. So if someone is fearful of leaving, like, oh, he'll just track me down or she'll track me down, those kind of things, that's a very real fear. And we need to also recognize we can't just say, oh, you should leave. No, it needs to be a a safe way to leave because we do know risk for increased violence in the form of intimate partner homicide increases in those those first three months. And then research does suggest it declines after that. But so we need to take that seriously that sometimes it's there's a fear that if I leave, they'll kill me. That's huge. And then we also need to think about cultural barriers or barriers related to aspects of one's identity, the culture that our client is from. I worked on a study uh, with with some of uh, my colleagues on looking at risk factors for intimate partner violence in Iran. And, you know, in that culture, getting a divorce, you know, it can really cause a lot of shame and that it was your duty, If and, and we looked at female victimization in, in this study, that it's it's your duty to keep the family unit together. And and there's a lot, that's not just Iran, that's a lot of cultures where you're, there's going to be stigma, or why didn't, you know, maybe you should have been a better partner, and there's a lot of shame surrounding about especially if they're married and have kids that again there's a lot of a lot of people where their friends and family there's going to be intense shame of separating or dissolving the marriage and I think that's important that for some of us just oh just get a divorce it's not a big deal but for others that's that's something that's really really difficult to do another one is looking at same sex or same gender couples where um, or queer couple couples where maybe, you know, one person may not be open to those in their community about their relationship. We, we've looked at, there's research suggesting that in same gender, same sex, uh, queer relationships, that that's another way of controlling one's partner is, you know, if you try to leave me, I'm going to tell everybody at your work and I'm going to 
virtually out you. Um, And that's another type of abuse. But again, we have to think about these things that maybe if we may not think about how scary it could be for somebody who that might not be something that say, I have to deal with as as someone who is say in an opposite gender relationship. Another big one is we have to think about race and ethnicity, especially when we're looking at help seeking behaviors. If if somebody is in an abusive relationship and their partner is, let's just say, like a black man, maybe they may not want to call the police. There's a fear, like, I I want the abuse to stop, but I'm also afraid of how the police are going to treat my partner. Are they going to maybe even die? We have to think about all of these barriers that are identity status, culture status, but even just things such as the real fear, children. Like I said, I could go on and on. I could talk an hour about different barriers, but I think that's a a good start at least. Giving us a ton to think about this hour and reflect on our work. So a couple things. What are some good resources if people want to learn more about how to do the conjoint work when there's situational violence and it's possible to work as a couple? Where should people go to learn more? And then if people want to continue the dialogue with you, Chelsea, what is the best way to reach you after they listen to this podcast? So one resource, um, I would go to uh, Dr. Sandra Stith. Her book is called Couples Therapy for Domestic Violence, Finding Safe Solutions. And of course, that's also Eric McCollum and Karen Rosen um, are the authors of that book. But that's a book that that you can purchase and it goes over their treatment modality and you know I would definitely recommend that I mean if they're you know if you're going to AMFT or anything like that seek out presentations that are on on this topic and then for me I'm always available someone can just email me my email is c as in chelsea spencer s-p-e-n-c-e-r at ksu.edu and I'm always available to, to talk or help. Or if, if you're interested in any studies, I can, can talk to you about some of the work I've done. And I'd be happy to do so. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AMFT podcast, where we learned a lot about the screening and risk factors for intimate partner violence. If you're craving more. You can get that book by Sandra Stith, Eric McCullum, that Chelsea mentioned. But you can also go to your one-stop shop for everything continuing education in systemic therapy. I'm talking about AAMFT's Tenio, the online learning platform. Easiest way to access that. You go to aamft.org. Go to the Enhanced Knowledge tab. And underneath, you will see online education and training, which takes you to Tenio. And you'll be looking for addressing partner violence, a biopsychosocial approach, which is a great team from East Carolina as they talk about IPV screening, working with minority clients, and how to respond to intimate partner violence through a biopsychosocial spiritual lens. Everybody, if you're interested in this, can access that. But AMFT members, whether they be student members or professional members, are two classifications of membership, get a substantial discount when accessing this offering or anything through Tenio. So I recommend it if you want to dig deeper into the conversation we started with Chelsea today. I also welcome 
Correspondence from you, the listener. Now in our fourth season, we rely on you to drive the content of our show where we try to mix between the movers and shakers in the field of systemic therapy with really important topics like we talked about today, intimate partner violence. Easiest way to get a hold of me, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com or check me out at EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I. K-A-R-A-M dot com. Please follow the conversation on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AAMFT. And I'm at Dr. Eli Live. We have four seasons of great installments of the AMFT podcast at your fingertips anytime you want to listen, whether you've been listening from day one or you're just getting on the bandwagon for the best couple in family therapy podcast around but i'm biased what do i know find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts apple Podcasts, spotify google we always appreciate a star rating and a review until next time my friends stay safe and most importantly stay systemic